I'm calling this session motivating while negotiating change. As you're trying to motivate other people to do things that God gave you a vision for, you're going to have to negotiate with them. It just stands to reason. You're going to have some people who are really going to go for it in the beginning. You're going to have some people who are going to fight you, and you're going to have some people who are going to go, well, I'm just not so sure about that. And so the first little bit of advice here is don't fight conflict when it arises because it will arise negotiated you know i've seen people who just all they want to do is 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 get in the arena and fight i was one of those when i was young i was so afraid of confrontation and then when a guy that i hired who i was intimidated of kind of bullied me into confronting people anytime i'd be whining about something somebody did he'd go well what did you say to him and it's like oh my gosh and so I, I, I just went for it. And for a little while, I was a tiger, a bad tiger, and it wasn't a good thing. I finally learned to calm down and not be fearful, which is what the guy Don taught me, but to negotiate rather than to always confront over anything. So the thing that we need to realize going into this session is when conflict appears to be over an immediate issue, it is more often due to the fear of change itself. People are afraid of change. They, they, you know, what's it going to do for me? What's it in it for me? How's it going to hurt me? How's it going to upset my life cycle? And so as we talk about these things, we want to look at the change cycle and understand change cycles. And, and I, I've put out here four different stages in a change cycle, four places where um, you're going to have to be careful as you introduce change. Now, We've been building up to this in this whole coaching session. And so here's the assumption that you got the values in place, that you've got a few hardcore people who are really on your team, but now you're at the point where that you're, you're trying to go a little broader. Now, maybe this is, you know, a third of your church. Maybe it's something you're doing with the whole church, but you're broadening the base. And so the first thing you do is introduce disruption. Now that in itself, is going to cause problems because anytime that you major change coming down the road, we're moving toward microchurch, whether it's autonomous microchurches outside of our church or microchurches inside. Just the term is something new for people. And so there is an introduction of disruption in that term. And then opposers are going to emerge for various reasons. But I think the biggest reason usually is I don't know what's in this for me. Is this going to be a harm to me? Whatever. And then the third part of the change cycle is where opposers who are opposing the change harden into opponents or enemies. And this kind of goes both ways. You become their enemy and then they become your enemy. And this is what you want to diffuse. This is where the negotiation comes into play. And then the fourth part of the change cycle is meaningful compromise or chaos is going to reign. One of the two of those is going to emerge and it's going to take over. And you know, you're going to be sorry if it's chaos, you're going to be really, really happy. Uh, if, if it's the thing that you're hoping for, that there's actualization of the vision that God gave you. And so and we're going to talk a little bit about preventing polarization in the chasm in the change adoption curve. And so I'm putting a picture up here of, of what I call a change adoption curve. And this is a little modification of something that you have seen. And usually you see the change adoption curve with percentages attached to it. I just wanted to leave them off to keep it a little bit cleaner here. And so 
you, you got the innovators who are probably your close disciples and they have emerged. You've been preaching, you've been teaching, and these people have been identifying with you and, and they're coming on. Now you've kind of branched out a little bit further and you've got the early adopters. Then comes the disruption event where you actually stand up and say, this is where we're going, this is what we're gonna do. And there becomes this chasm between um, the disruption event and people in, in large scale beginning to adopt what it is that you're talking about. And when we think of the chasm, uh, you know, I, I think of in the Bible where uh, David was made the king in Hebron. God had promised him that he was going to be the king. Everybody knew that. He was the hero of the nation, slaying Goliath. Um, later on, when the people of Judah came and said, come and be our king, they said exactly the same thing as the people in Hebron did. They said, that, you know, even though Saul was our king, you are our defender. You're the one who went out and did this stuff. And so we want you to be our king. But here's the deal. There's a seven-year chasm in between. The people of Judah, who were David's family, clan, very quickly in Hebron made him king. He was, you know, seven years from the time that the people of Israel would come to him. And so what we really want to talk about today is preventing polarization, pre preventing enmity to come between us and the people that we love and that we're called the shepherd in this time that we call the chasm. And so I've mapped out seven tools for motivating individuals during a time of change. In this situation, the change that we're looking toward is moving from the way we've done church in the past to a new direction for church, a different paradigm. And so here are the seven very quickly. Map potential responses prior to finalizing your vision. Secondly, unmask your commitment with a metaphor. It's easier to do things with a metaphor than just to do things by trying to explain them. Provide a projected timeline for change. Make haste slowly. Understand the how will this affect me concerns of your people. Address your opponent's concerns privately then gather and spread any support that you might glean from your opponents. And finally, marginalize underminers and those people who are totally unwilling to move. So let's just talk about this uh, one at a time and, and we'll kind of expand. The first thing that I've always done, particularly when uh, for us, it wasn't hard to move to what we call micro churches because we just uh, we were in such need the first time that we did it. When I started the church in Honolulu, it was a given. We actually did. We had three microchurches before we ever met on a Sunday, and we were three weeks into those three groups. But as I'm looking at change, for me, the biggest problems were usually related to a building fund. Uh, raising money was always a big thing. And then actually moving onto the property. Once we got the building and we built it, there were people in the public school services who didn't want to move. And so what we did was we would map out the potential responses prior to finalizing the, the vision. Now, what I mean by that? Well, who, who are the people who hold power? Now, power is the ability to make things happen. Now, this doesn't necessarily, but it includes appointed positions of power in the church. But there are power players who just influence a bunch of people by the way they scowl at you during a meeting or, you know, the, the, the people that they jump on the phone and, and start calling a lot of people or send a, you know, email blitz or whatever. So I'm going to kind of map out the power people and make a pretty big list and, and then start going through it and go, who needs special attention? 
And usually what I'm going to do is before I make the disruptive announcement, I'm going to go to these people and try to soften the blow so that when I stand up there, they at least feel like, oh, man, I'm an insider. He told me this before he told the rest of them. And so they're more prone to go along with the program if I've kind of softened them up ahead of time. And then I'm going to unmask my commitment with a metaphor. Now, why do I do this? Well, for one thing, it's easier to gather a metaphor and internalize it than it is, you know, here's all the technical jargon of what we're going to do. But the real reason that I'm after this is it gives them something that's a target that they can shoot at rather than shooting at me or rather than shooting at the, the initial idea. What almost immediately happens is when you open the floor for discussion, they'll start if they're if they're negative, they'll start to attack the metaphor rather than to attack the thing that you're talking about. They'll give, they'll, they'll speak of the thing. You know, when you're talking about this, you said this, and then they go after the metaphor. And what that does is it kind of depersonalizes the argument. It keeps it from, uh, for one, undermining what you're trying to do directly. And for two, it makes it just a little bit easier to debate something without turning into enemies. Because remember, we're here talking about negotiating our way through change and through the cycles of change. Third thing is to provide a projected timeline for change and in make haste slowly. And so what I want to do is say, you know, this is just blue sky here, but this is what I think. Now, I'm, I'm sure the Lord will have different plans and it'll come out a little differently. But by this date, we'd like to see this. By this date, we'd like to see this. By this date, we'd like to see this. And I'm a gradualist. I am going to move things, uh, you know, this make haste slowly thing. I've done some pretty radical things in my life that other people would stand around and go, oh my gosh. And But we, we've kind of gone real slow about it and it's helped us to ease into things that would otherwise kind of upset the apple cart. I got a friend, actually he was my buddy and we started the church in Hawaii together, Aaron Suzuki. And uh, he used to test motorcycles for Honda. I mean, stuff like they'd fly him to Georgia, him and nine or 10 other guys and give them a prototype motorcycle. And, you know, they, they gussy up that he worked for Honda, right? They put Yamaha emblems on the bike and tape over things so people couldn't identify the bike and go ride it across the country and try to break it. Uh, one of the other things that they would do is rent, uh, it's out of business now, but Riverside Raceway, a racetrack for four or five days. Numerous times they did this, just go out there and drive the bike as hard as you can, try to break it. And then because you're kind of a hot rodder, that's why we hired you, you fix it. And then we'll, the real engineers will know how to go in and imitate what you did and fix the bike. Well, I took Aaron skiing and because he was riding motorcycles and fast motorcycles, and I thought he's just going to be a go for it skier. We were on the bunny slope all day and he stopped me at one point and said, you know, Ralph, I think I've kind of disappointed you because you think that what I do on motorcycles, I'm going to do on the ski slopes. He goes, well, I'm exactly doing on the ski slope what I do on motorcycles. And that's I learn everything gradually. I can do some pretty crazy things on motorcycles, but I got there inch by inch by inch by inch. And so I learned from him and incorporated this into my thinking about the process of change and how I have to work with people. I need to lay it out there, but it, but it there needs to be a gradualism and then it needs to be soft dates. It needs to be, this is what I think is going to happen. So it gives people a little bit of time to adjust and to go, well, this isn't cast in concrete. Then I don't have to make my opinion cast in concrete either. 
the the fourth thing here is to understand the how will this affect me concern and again when i'm mapping out potential responses i'm writing down this is how i think this is going to affect this person and this gives me kind of a leg up when i get into a debate with them i i, I have answers prepared or when i do the next thing that i want to do and that's to address these opponents of mine privately i go to them one at a time we have the meeting you know we disrupt everything maybe we have two or three meetings and then i'm drinking coffee with a bunch of these people or i'm calling them on the phone by the way face to face is much better than being on the phone and and i'm just trying to uh, find out what needs to be changed what do i need to do differently what do i need to say to them to kind of help calm them down and and help them realize well this you're, you're still going to be a part a player you're you're that's a big issue am i going to be a player uh, because usually the people who are going to turn into your opponents are people who have leadership qualities and they have influence in the congregation and they're fearful of change undermining their influence and that's a big deal to them and then I want to gather any support that I can glean from my opponents. So what do I mean by this? Well, we're having a discussion and they'll give something. You know, I give something, they give something. That's kind of what you do when you're negotiating. But what they gave, I'm going to take note of. And then when I go talk to the next opponent, I'm going to go, well, you know, such and such said this when I, I talk, you talked to him. Yeah. Three days ago, we we're together and, 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 you know, there's, he's got issues, but this is what he said. And I'm not lying. I'm not making something up. I'm just spreading the good news. And the more that I spread it, the more I'm beginning to build and negotiate momentum into what it is that we're trying to do. This works very, very well. It has worked for me over the years. Uh, I had two ladies in the church that didn't like each other. And I started, uh, you know, this is way back in the days when you made house calls as a pastor. And I was a youth pastor at the time. And I'd go eat food at one lady's house and drink coffee. And I'd go to the other lady's house and eat what she baked and drink tea. And, and then I'd start talking about each other when I was with them. And I'd get them to say one positive little thing about the other person. And then I'd go to the other person a couple of weeks later and say, you know, she said this about you. Really? And then I got those ladies to end up, they didn't become best friends, but they stopped being enemies. The last part of this is, to marginalize the underminers and those who are totally unwilling to move. How do you do that? Well, I, I think that if they're an underminer, you know, you're in a position where you can stand up in front of people in the church and on a Sunday morning and say, you know, I heard this this week and you're not saying who said it or anything about that person. It's just, I heard it. And then you can make some goofy little remark to just kind of, you know, kind of, chalk that off as stupid. And I, I recall there was a time when um, I was preaching on tithing. And I've had some very good experiences preaching on tithing. I don't know how to raise money, but I do know how to preach tithing. And I had a congregation that full of tithers. In fact, at one point, the biggest giver in our church had found the Lord. He, first time he ever came to church, I was preaching on tithing. His wife had been praying for him forever. And I knew about it. I was praying for him. I had never met him. He shows up in the church and it's like, oh no, I got this tithing sermon. He accepted the Lord that day. He became our biggest giver right out the gate. So I've had good experiences preaching about tithing. So I'm up, we're still in the public school and I'm up in this really, really well-dressed couple way. I mean, we're 
kind of a surfer church and very laid back. These people, they got the the rich people suntan and they're you know they're dressed in linens and you know they're pretty cool. And they come up and they sit on the front row off to my side where there were like four sections of chairs, I believe, and they're in the in the far left section in the front row. And there's an open door right there because we're in a public school and there's no air conditioning and you know we're hoping for air to come through. And I announced that I'm speaking on tithing. And they just kind of look at each other and kind of puff themselves up, get up, make a big deal of it, and then turn and walk for that door. And so I just looked at them and I go, and the whole congregation erupted in laughter. What, what did I do? I marginalized them. They were on the way out the door. I didn't really care. I just by 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 a, a little bit of a, of a sneering laughter, I marginalized them. You can do that. And then you want to marginalize those who are still with you, but they're totally unwilling to change. And how you do that is maybe give them a new job um, or get them somehow out of the process that you're negotiating toward and good things are going to happen. I think this is really crucial because I've been reading the book of Revelation lately and we're really not unlike the Sardis church. You know, as I start to read Revelation 3, uh, here, here's what Jesus says to the church at Sardis. And I think it's important that we so, sort of apply this to the Church of America, not necessarily your congregation, but maybe your congregation, not necessarily my congregation, but I can look back, you know, and I find this there. And it says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. Now, this reminds me of Paul's words to Titus in, in, in Titus chapter one. He says, go back and strengthen what remains. And how do you do this? By planting churches, appointing elders. And so I think that we have made a mistake. We've gathered crowds. We haven't built churches. Um, we haven't done the micro church thing, which more accurately reflects what I see in Acts chapter two. We haven't done a really good job of equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, which would mean we'd be a lot better at delegating than we are had we done that. And so he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And that's kind of where we're at in the church in America. Uh, what remains is about to die. And then he goes on to say, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Oh my goodness, what a thing to say to all of us. You know, I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. There are big gaping holes in Ralph Moore and the ministry that I've had over the years. I can tell you everything that's wrong with the Hope Chapels. And if I could go back and do things over, I'd do a better job. But I think I was more on track than the people who were driving the seeker driven movement because we were making disciples who made disciples and we were intent on planting churches. We foolishly thought this was something special for us to do and that we were some kind of hot rods over it. And we didn't understand this is really the mission of the whole church. I understand that now. And I think there's a lot of people who need to hear this uh, wake up and and complete the works that God gave you. And he says, remember then what you have received and heard. And this is the problem. You know, we're reading all these church growth books. We're not remembering what we've seen and heard in the Bible. And then he says, keep it. In other words, do what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do and repent, change your behavior. And then he says, if you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief 
and you'll not know at what hour I'll come against you. You know, I look at the pandemic and what's happened during this whole time, and I think it's just a warm up. You know, as I read through, I've been in Kings and Chronicles lately, and I see the warnings that God gives to the people of Israel and then to the people of Judah. And, and he warned them over and over and over that I'm going to come and I'm going to take you guys away if you don't get serious. And it feels like uh, the disruption that we had during COVID was a little warm up. Um, the big fall off that we've had in church since the 1950s, huge things are happening and we're kind of sleeping right through them. Pastors are leaving the ministry like crazy now, post-pandemic, and we're kind of missing the boat here. We need to wake up and strengthen those things that remain. And how we do that, we make disciples who make disciples, and we multiply churches that can multiply churches, whether they are um, mega churches or micro churches, we just get in the process and do the thing. And then he says this, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. I think that's talking about people like you guys that are listening to this, who are, have actually waken up and clued in and are doing the thing that Jesus asked them to do, or at least attempting it. And that's why we're together talking about these things. And then the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. And then the last thing he says is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's kind of a message to the church in America. It's a message to you and to me, certainly to me. Uh, wake up, strengthen what remains, do a better job. You know, don't quit. I, I, uh, I'm i old man, but I, I'm not about to really retire because I feel like the Lord has a call in my life and I need to fulfill that call. One of the last things that I wanna talk about while we're talking about change is motivate people to maximize mission while minimizing maintenance. Motivate people to maximize mission while minimizing maintenance. What do I mean by that? Well, quite often when people have fear and, and they're fearful of change, they're fearful of what I'm going to lose, uh, then they just begin to dumb down whatever it is that you're trying to do. And so not much gets changed and we always kind of find ourselves coming back to maintaining status quo. And so when I say maintenance, I'm not talking about, you know, cleaning the church toilets. I'm talking about maintaining things the way that we have become comfortable with them. Motivate people to move toward maximizing mission. And how you do that is you keep the mission in front of them all the time while minimizing the tendency to fall back into maintaining what we've grown accustomed to. In other words, you want to move people out of their comfort zone and on the mission. This is a big deal, and it's going to require a lot of thought and a lot of negotiation. 